0: I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. Hello, my name is David Clayton. This is the Way of Beauty podcast, and I am here with Christopher West. Christopher, it's great to have you here again.
1: David, very good to be with you. I really appreciate your particular take on all these topics that you and I love to talk
0: about. (laughs) Yes, we always have an interesting discussion. so today, what I'd like to, to hear your views on particularly and just your experience um, is uh, how we can popularize theology. And what has sparked this off is clearly, um, it, it's, it's clear to me at any rate, that you have a, a real gift in drawing people in and enthusing people um, about a subject and subjects that might otherwise seem rather dry and dull. And I would just like to know a little bit more about how you do it. I think that there are there may be others in the church that uh, have this gift and don't know it, or might like to learn how to do it in, in their particular field. So um, that's what I'd like you to talk about. Before we do it, I'm just going to ask you to Um, pause for a moment We'll, we'll both pause and just ask you to say a prayer and then I'll come back to you and we'll we'll get going so I'll leave it with you
1: let us pray in the name of the Father the Son the Holy Spirit Amen. Lord prayer is an exercise of desire we ask for the grace right now as we pray to be in touch with the deepest yearnings of our hearts There we find the kapaks dei. There we find our capacity for God, our capacity for you, Lord. As the Catechism says, prayer, whether we realize it or not, is where your thirst meets our thirst. Give us the courage to thirst for you, Lord. Give us the courage to direct our thirst towards the living water, that you have promised us this is prayer to thirst and to open that thirst to you lord trusting that you desire you are pleased to give us the kingdom we entrust ourselves to that good pleasure of you our heavenly father we ask you to guide our conversation and we ask this in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit
0: amen Amen. okay christopher terrific so uh what i'd like you to to do first if you can remember is just tell us how um, you came to be doing what you do how you discovered uh, that you were able to connect with people um, in this topic and, it, and particularly in some sort of theological concerns and matters of the faith
1: yes it, it takes us back to a, a previous conversation that you and I had David about music
0: oh yes when mm-hmm.
1: I when I discovered the theology of the body in the early 1990s, I was actually pursuing a music career. I was reading John Paul II during the day on my lunch break at work. I had a nine to five job. And then in the evenings, I was going into a music studio and recording an album uh, of songs that I had written. And I was, I was going to shop that album around to various record companies that was my career path at the time, to be a musician. And I was getting overwhelmed by the power of this theology that I was discovering from now St. John Paul II. And, you know, I, I, I didn't have any particular affinity towards John Paul II at the time. I, I remember the day he was elected, I was a third grader in Catholic school. This is 1978. And, you know, okay, Polish Pope, that's kind of interesting. But I just went on with my life. I went on with being, you know, growing up, being a teenager. And music was the thing that spoke to my heart more than anything. Here, reading this theology of the body, and I'm 24 years old at this point, early 90s, there was a kind of merging for the first time in my life with how music fed my soul and now theology was feeding me at that level this was a first for me you know my my brand of catholic education was not um how to put it uh it was it did not reach the heart it did not speak to my heart bruce springsteen was speaking much more to what i was experiencing interiorly than anything i was learning in religion class but here i was reading John Paul II's Theology of the Body, and somehow, I I would learn later how, um, but somehow this Pope was able to put his finger on the deepest questions, stirrings, yearnings of my soul, and and give me a language that helped me understand myself. And I remember reading it and feeling like a burning inside me, kind of like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, when the Lord opened the scriptures to them. They said, were our, were our hearts not burning within us? This was my experience, David, of reading the theology of the body. This, this vicar of Christ was walking with me in my tragedies, in my questions, in my yearnings, and he was opening the scriptures for me, and my heart was burning. And I, I, I knew then that my life was taking a turn uh, from pursuing a music career to pursuing a career in which I was sharing with as many people as would listen to what I was experiencing in encountering this opening of the scriptures to me. That was the origin of it. I, I didn't know what shape it was going to take. That was 26 years ago, and, and it has taken, taken the shape it has taken um That's kind of my my initial thought to your initial question.
0: Yeah. So that I I can see that what you're describing there is how it affected you, and it's and it's planted in you that desire to talk about it from the sound of it. You yes. You want to you want to others to know about it and to know this. Woe good to news. me
1: if I do not share what I have been given. Really.
0: Yeah. I, I felt
1: I, I felt like I was holding in my hands the cure to the world's cancer. And, and I also realized nobody knows this. I went nice. to Catholic school my whole life and nobody talked about this at all. And when, when, when you discover something that critical, and I, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say it is the cure for the world's cancer, uh, and, it, and it remains so to this day, even more so than it was 25 or 26 years ago, it remains pertinent. It remains absolutely critical to understand what is going on in the world. If you look back, at the history of crises in the church whenever there's a crisis in the church the holy spirit raises up a great saint who is ahead of his time to respond to that crisis and the crisis of our day for whatever reason uh, history will tell the tale maybe we won't know till eternity but we are in the midst of a profound crisis of our humanity particularly as it concerns our creation as male and female in the image and likeness of God we are in an all out war over the meaning of the body the meaning of sexuality the meaning of gender the meaning of marriage the meaning of of family uh, and this has repercussions throughout the whole of our faith because our faith is a nuptial mystery it's the mystery of the covenant between God and humanity and that covenant is a spousal covenant the reason the enemy is after our sexuality is because if he can twist and distort our creation as male and female we will no longer see the sacramentality of the physical world and by that i mean how the physical world reveals the mystery of the spiritual and the divine and that's why i really believe this is this theology of the body is the answer to the crisis of our day and john paul ii was the one who was raised up he's the great saint who was raised up to articulate the response to the crisis of our day and when i discovered this i i intuited i was holding something in my hands that it was that important and when you do you can't sit on it you have to share it with people and that began the long a journey I'm still on which remains a, a process of trial and error uh, of learning how to communicate these dense theological ideas with language with images with metaphor with symbol with with uh, things that people can relate to music and and movies the the I, I, I art is critical here to convey something at this depth you can't just do it with words we get to the point where we need poetry we need metaphor we need symbol if we're going to go deep into the mysteries of the human heart and that is how my my teaching style has has unfolded just by encountering over and over again a desperate desire to communicate these truths from heart to heart you have to learn how to speak precisely from heart to heart
0: okay tell us then how it began so you, we've got we've talked about how you're really fired up you, this has affected yeah. you and not only has it changed your life it's given you that deep desire to to, to affect other people's lives yeah. um, i know that you you then set out to uh, on a program of education and so you learnt yeah. more about this as an academic level but i don't want to dwell on yeah. that I, what what I'm interested in is how you began to talk to people about it, how, how you noticed that people were listening to you. Did, it, what, did you just book a hall and uh, <laughs> post, put posters up for a lecture? or How did it, all that start?
1: Yes, well, I, after I finished my graduate studies, I studied at the John Paul II Institute in Washington, D.C. in the mid-'90s. Yeah. I was hired by the Archdiocese of Denver This was 1997 to be the director of the marriage and family life office. And right at the same time I was hired, it was announced that Pope John Paul II had appointed Archbishop Charles Chaput as the Archbishop of Denver. So he and I showed up in Denver at the same time. Okay. And he became, he became a mentor to me in some very important ways. I was young. I was 27, 28 years old when I got hired there. And, and I had a lot of theological ideas. I had a lot of enthusiasm and zeal to get this message out, but I had not really butted up against how audiences were going to hear and receive what I was saying, but I had plenty of opportunity to butt up against audiences because I was in charge of marriage preparation in the Archdiocese of Denver. Okay. And so that put me in front of engaged couples, some of the hardest and most skeptical audience you could imagine on a very regular basis. And I also started, the word started getting out in the diocese. I started getting invited to Bible studies to lead reflections, to, to all kinds of things. Moms groups, uh, marriage enrichment conferences. And, and it just grew, it kind of snowballed. People were very interested in what I had to say, although <laughs> it was a steep learning curve. Uh, I was, I, to put a metaphor to it, I was not a very good dancer and I was stepping on toes, and, <laughs> and I, would, I would take my dance partner for big dips without asking her, so to speak, <laughs> and, and I've become a better dancer over the years, but it has, it has really been a, a process of trial and error in a following, again, a, a, a deep desire to want to connect heart to heart. If we keep theology only at an academic level, we may tickle intellects, but it will not transform lives. Deep cries out to deep in the roar of many waters, as the psalmist says. Yes. And, and that's where I have attempted to go. And there's a line in um, the letter to the Thessalonians that has, has really inspired me, where St. Paul says, we loved you so dearly that we shared not only with you the gospel of Jesus Christ but we shared our very selves and when i look back david at the people who have affected me most i look back for example at my my academic formation at the john paul ii institute and one professor in particular stands out to me and you know all the all the professors i had shared their academic knowledge with me for which i'm grateful but I would only say one or maybe two of them really shared their very selves. And that had a profound impact on me. I don't remember even much of what they said from the podium in terms of the lectures they gave. I remember more the witness of their lives. I remember their vulnerability. I remember them sharing their very selves and I knew they had had an encounter with with a love and a mystery that had transformed them, not only shaped their minds and made them, you know, a, a great theologian in an academic sense, but they had a, a knowledge at an interior level that was life transforming. And they were willing to share that. They were willing to make themselves vulnerable. Mm. And that's risky business, but, but it is how hearts, Connect with hearts. It's how deep cries out to deep.
0: It's so interesting hearing you talk about this. I'm I'm just thinking about my own story. My my uh, most recent book, The Vision for You, is is about um, how I discerned my personal vocation, which is really what you're describing. Um,
1: yes, and I I have read. I'm I think I'm a third of the way through that book, and I was I was the story you tell is compelling. It's heart speaking to heart.
0: This, oh well, thank you for saying that. It's called the vision for you for any anyone who's interested. But what I, rather like you, what I wanted to communicate was how this man had made. I I was a cynic. I can't, you know, I I was this sort of sarcastic British guy who used to make fun of people, you know, as we're so good at, and um, and he just totally turned me around. But it was the same thing that he revealed himself as well as having the knowledge and the information and good judgment,
1: yeah, yeah. all
0: of that, and being a the, the, he connected with me at a personal level. Uh, this this is this man, David Bertwistle, who um, who eventually became my Catholic sponsor. Later on, um, when you talked of Archbishop Shapu as a, a mentor, I mean, what a mentor to have, by the way. <laughs> um the I I think of uh, a man called Stratford Coldicott who I uh, later met in uh in England and I tell the story of that in the vision for you I I I set off to the US I read John Paul the letters John Paul the second's letter to artists really I mean he had an impact on me I thought, wow, there's two of us who believe in art, me and John the II. <laughs> and, and so I thought, right, in America, the streets are paved with gold. There's lots of Catholics. All I've got to do is go and tell these Catholic universities how to create an art school. So I just bought a ticket and I got in touch with anyone I knew in America. My brother was living in the US at that time as well and just walked into the foyers of, of Catholic universities and said, I'd like to talk to somebody about creating art departments and they would look at me <laughs> um, But in the, <laughs> in, in the process. I, and so it, uh, you know, I wanted people to do this and um, in the, and I just thought, well, if they just knew about John Paul II's letter, obviously they would change. And I, I, you know, I didn't realize that, you know, that there were some raging battles going on in, in our, in the, American yeah. universities at this time but all of them mentioned this guy Stratford Coldicott. he's in England why don't you you know have you thought about talking to him and I just thought oh he's going to be a sort of uh, dry Oxford academic I want somebody who goes out there and and you know has a dynamism um, and then I got a, 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 an email from someone at home saying I've just been to a talk Uh, from somebody and he talks about all the same things that you do and his name is Stratford Caldicott so I thought okay I think (laughs) I should be going to see this guy so I went back to England and I just phoned him up and walked into his office and he said to me I'd like to help you and so he gave me a lot of guidance at, at that time beautiful and so if I could just, I'm going to throw it back to you and and just listen to your reaction to this, but it seems to me that so much of this is about just going out there and doing it, and if it's meant to be, one way or another, the doors will open. If you're on fire with it, people will see something, and if if they don't, then that's your sign in a way. Don't worry about it. You keep, you're meant to be doing something else. I, I just wonder how that sounds to you as a Principle. Yeah,
1: it, it, it certainly rings true. There, I'm reminded of what uh, Catherine of Siena said. One of her most famous statements was, uh, "If you are who you're really meant to be, you'll set the world on fire." <laughs> and and I, I think if if we have that fire within us, yes, we'll be met by all kinds of blank stares and worse. <laughs> but there are <laughs> there are those who thirst. The, uh, Saint Augustine said give me one who thirsts and he will understand what i'm saying yes that 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 to me i mean yes we we can we can try to awaken people's thirst for those who are maybe on the fence uh, but there are plenty of people who are already in touch with their thirst and i i think of um one of the, the i don't even know who ever said it but i i love it it's I, the saying is Uh, evangelization is nothing other than one hungry person showing another hungry person where to find good bread. (laughs) And, and that to me, I, I want to speak to the hungry. I want to speak to those. let me put it this way. Those who have the easiest audience to speak to are those who already have that deep sense of, I am looking for something. I am thirsty. I am hungry. Those who have reduced, Religion to a dry legalistic following of rules and, and cold duty. These will not be awakened by fire. And I, here I think of the, the parable of the prodigal son. What caused the younger son to leave home? It was his hunger. It was his thirst. It was his seeking. Now, he was deceived in thinking that he would find it somewhere else. But what brought him back to the father's house? The same thing that caused him to leave, his hunger. And then he comes back to the father's house, and and who won't join the celebration? The older brother, who had reduced life in his father's house to a following of of rules and kind of harsh and cold duty, he refused to go into the celebration. This This is very instructive for us. Mm. The celebration in the parable is, of course, heaven. And and it's a tragedy that we could find ourselves not even wanting to enter the celebration when we've spent our lives just merely following duty. Heaven is for hungry people.
0: Yes. Because
1: heaven is a feast. Heaven is a wedding feast, to be more specific. Christianity is for hungry people. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. They shall be satisfied. And my, my whole approach to, as you had put it, David, to popularizing theology is just to begin speaking heart to heart about the hunger we all feel as human beings. If we don't begin there, then there is a danger that, that we keep it merely at the head level, at the academic level, and we don't speak heart to heart. And we may tickle intellects, and we may, you know, pride ourselves in our own intellectual information. But if information does not become transformation, there's a real danger that we end as the, the older brother did, and he doesn't enter the celebration. There's a real danger that we end as the Pharisees ended, who were orthodox in their beliefs and their doctrines, but they had not allowed the information to become transformation. And that's that's a dangerous place to be.
0: Yes. Now, in, in speaking to those who are thirsty, I, I'm going to tell you something that I try and do, and uh, but it, I can see that it's limited, but it's it, I've, I'm just... For my personal approach, I seem to have settled on this. I'm not saying I couldn't be a lot better. But what I try and do is imagine, I'm trying to think, how can I say this so that I meet people where they are, so that they understand it? And I I don't find it easy to put myself in other people's shoes, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, So what I try and do is imagine what I would want to hear 30 years ago, when I was that yes, yes. person, I so I'm right I, with I, you. I, and so what I tend to do is talk to me as I was, and I yes. think then what happens is that I what happens then is that I connect with people who, in a certain way, in some respect, are as I was or as I am. And so there's enough of those around that you know that I yes. feel as though I'm connecting. Now, it strikes me that you go broader than that. Unless, Do you have any sort of conscious device that you use to put yourself in other people's shoes? Because you seem to do it very successfully.
1: Well, I, 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 first I want to affirm, David, that I think that's a very appropriate approach. Because you are you are sharing yourself, just as we were saying earlier. And there are plenty of people, just like you were 30 years ago, who need to hear what you didn't hear
0: 30 years ago. Yeah.
1: And, and that I think is a very effective way of putting yourself in people's shoes. I do something very similar. I, I think what I I do this, even in my, my parenting and I'll leave it to my children to, to tell you whether or not it has succeeded, (laughs) but you know, what would I have wanted to hear growing up from my father? Right. Uh, that's been the impetus of the way I have fathered my children. Um, and I do it similarly with my students. What would I have wanted to hear in my theology classes? What would I have wanted to hear growing up in the Catholic church that I, I didn't hear? Um, if I, if I, if I go broader, maybe, and and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I do think we share this as well. Uh. Uh, uh, why 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 would, why do we call pop culture pop culture? We call it pop culture because it's popular yes. right why is it popular? it's popular and and we can of course criticize all kinds of things about pop culture and I'm not one to just uh with it, I'm not one to indiscriminately embrace pop culture, but there is a reason certain things become popular. there's a reason certain movies have a broad appeal. Certain songs, certain artists have a broad appeal. And I am very interested in understanding why, for example, Titanic is one of the best-selling movies of all time. Why is that? Mm. Uh, And women made Titanic one of the best-selling movies of all time. Why? I remember Jeff a friend of mine, he (laughs) was he was joking one time. He said, what are we to think that all of a sudden women around the world had a strange fascination with large boats? (laughs) You know, this is, this is not why Titanic became the best, one of the best selling movies of all time. It's because of Jack. And it's because Jack for all his flaws, and we could talk about them as well, but nonetheless, Jack lays down his life for Rose. Unto death. Mm. And and every great story will contain elements of the Christ story. Because mm-hmm. in the end, there's only one great story. It's the Christ story.
0: Yep.
1: And and what these women were attracted to in Jack is in as much as he laid down his life for Rose, they're attracted to the Christ in him. And I'm after that. I'm after that in music. I'm after that in movies. I'm looking for those, Bishop Robert Barron calls it, calls it seeds of the word. I'm looking for those seeds of the word, and I'm looking to appeal to that in the human heart and connect the dots for people. I've had so many aha moments in my classroom when I show movie clips or play certain popular songs or certain clips from uh, popular TV shows where where you just tease out the seed of the word my colleague bill Dunahy calls it you know we we speak of lexio divina but he speaks of video divina Mm. he speaks of radio divina (laughs) where where we are giving a divine reading to these things of the culture to demonstrate that the truths of the faith are not imposed on us from the outside they well up from within, in our deepest desires.
0: Yes, and I think we're doing a, a podcast, Divina, right now. I had to say that. Yeah. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> no, well, this is wonderful. Yeah, I, it's it really does. Um, it's interesting. I, I uh, look at popular culture as well, and, and I know that we we share this view, and um, that ultimately always people are searching for something good and you realize what it and even if they're looking in the wrong direction or in the wrong way that at its heart there's a search for something good and and i guess that's what we have to do is discern what it is they're looking for and it begins it seems i'm just sort of recapping what you're saying with us discerning what it is we're looking for
1: that's right that's right david
0: And at the very least, everybody can start to do that. And then we find what our natural constituency, if I can call it, that is. So for you, it's a very large number of people at the moment. For me, it's a smaller group. But I know that I connect with people in a, with the people I connect with. I know I connect with them strongly because they tell me. And the same has happened to me with the people that I've met with Stratford and this guy David Bertwistle. That they, um, some of them had a huge impact with large numbers of people, others just connected with a few but powerfully. And with, that's that's the part that each of us can play, I think, um, in in fi- recognizing that hunger within and speaking to it, as we feed it as well, and then. Just see what happens. Watch people come to you, I think.
1: Yes, I think you're putting your finger on it. And I, I'll share a, a quote from, um, this is one of my professors. He was one of the ones who had a big impact on me. He was a a dear friend of John Paul II's. In fact, he got his doctorate under John Paul II. His name is Stanislaw Griegel. And this is a book he wrote called Discovering the Human Person in conversation with John Paul II, cannot recommend this book enough. Uh, You can get it on Amazon. It's just absolutely astounding. And this is just one line from it, which speaks to me so deeply. Uh, Griegel says, the human body speaks with the language proper to beauty. So he's he's speaking of here of, of where John Paul II's theology of the body came from. He says, the human body speaks with the language proper to beauty. And then he says, only poets whose language is song comprehend this beauty, which is ultimately the beauty of the word, because the word was made flesh. I could go on and on and on about why this speaks to me so profoundly that only poets whose language is song comprehend the beauty of the body, which is the beauty of the word made flesh. Uh, I I remember a time you had asked earlier, David, about the the kind of evolution of my teaching style. Mm. Uh, I'll, I'll tell a story. This was 2002. I remember it distinctly. I was uh, recording an audio series with an audience in front of me, and I was trying to convey to my audience the sacramentality of the world, that that Catholicism is the religion of smells and bells, and that the goal is not to crush our senses, but as uh, Cardinal Ratzinger says, The goal is to expand our senses to the widest capacity so that they pass over into the mystical senses. And and I was was trying to convey to an audience that is so often disconnected from their bodies, disconnected from their senses, and they have come to view their senses as a hindrance to the spiritual life, uh, that, that I was trying to convey these ideas, and all of a sudden, song from my childhood just welled up in my heart, and I belted it out. It was John Denver. You fill up my senses like a night in the forest. And I, I just belted it out. And, and it wasn't pre planned. It wasn't, oh, and now I'm going to sing this song. It just, it just welled up because I was in that place where I was trying to connect a, a, a theological truth with the hearts of my audience. And when I sang that song, when I belted it out, I sensed an immediate shift in the room. Mm. And people got out of their heads and they felt it in their bones. And this is the power of music. It, it, it kind of bypasses, bypasses certain places where we can short circuit in the brain. And it goes straight into the heart and, and opens us up, cracks us open. And I remember just thinking oh wow that was that was very effective um, something happened there something shifted in my classroom because I, I gave myself permission to make myself vulnerable and sing a song and and I saw the heart starting to crack open and that was the the first instance in in learning how to just not that I sing my whole lecture to my audiences but if I'm inspired by a song in the middle of a lecture and it happens more often than not. And I began to realize, wow, that's been happening to me for years, but I've just kind of shut it down. You know, for whatever reason, you're not supposed to sing in a classroom, (laughs) but I started giving myself permission when a song would well up in me that was connecting a certain point that I was trying to make to my, my students, I'd let it out. And it has become, I would say a very effective teaching method and my students. Kind of know me for it and are grateful to me for it, uh, to, to help them connect the dots from theology to the inner experience of their hearts. Music helps to do that in profound ways. I had a, an Orthodox, not an Orthodox, excuse me, an Eastern Catholic priest, a Byzantine priest come to one of my courses some years ago, and he said something to me that I'll never forget. He said, he said we have a saying in the Christian East. That a truth that does not sing is a truth betrayed, mm. and I, I, I love that uh, idea, and and it coincides perfectly with the the culmination of Scripture, which of course is the incarnation. But the the mystics, what is their favorite book in the Bible?
0: So I'm guessing the Song of Songs.
1: The Song of Songs. Yeah. The Song of All Songs
0: by far is the greatest, uh, most favorite
1: book of the greatest saints and mystics. More commentaries have been written on the Song of Songs by the saints than any other book in the Bible. Why is that? Because Christ is a lover and the scripture is a love song. And the Song of Songs is right in the middle of the Bible for a reason. God is singing to us and we need to learn how to enter that song and sing back if we do not do that and i'm not saying every theology oh, professors not. they're called therefore called to sing it, it makes um,
0: yeah, it, it, it makes me think i should bring out my banjo i don't know i what when i was <laughs> to be an artist I, I was also believe it or not i just returned from uh being a student in the u.s and i came back playing claw hammer banjo um i actually thought about do i want to pursue this as a career and i went for um for art instead (laughs) how things could have been different i would have been um picking away the the gospel i guess
1: (laughs) well david i think there's more of a profound connection there with your banjo than you realize
0: (laughs) well all of it's all every form of music has its place the thing that I love I mean I would just talk about that the thing that I loved I was playing this Appalachian music which was historically even pre-bluegrass so it's the yeah, what yeah. happened to British Isles music in these valleys in Appalachia I think and a lot of it was English um, particularly um, and so it's not surprising that I should connect with it but the thing that I loved about it is, is that actually is, it's just the, these repeated phrases over and over again you just have a b a b a b and it's dance music and it's it's actually really uh, joyous but powerful um and it's it has these sort of riffs if you like these phrases just like pop music say so that it that clearly connect with your your dancing feet somehow, and then they just repeat them over and over again as you work your way through the the square dance or whatever it is. Um, And musically, it's very, very simple, Uh, but everything, even this simple form of music that comes from the mountains of the US, um, it it potentially um, has a way of connecting people and sending them off in the direction of God it's good to dance on occasion you know it's it's natural amen
1: that's how um, heaven is described as a a festive celebration there will be dancing there will be singing there will be wine this is how scripture (laughs) describes heaven
0: yeah well um i'll let you close is there anything you want to say i think we'll finish there it's been terrific and Uh, Christopher West, uh, thank you very much. And and just do you have any closing remarks before we go?
1: Yeah, I'll share one closing thought here from, again, from Stanislaw Griegel. Oh, yes. This close friend of, of John Paul II. He says this. He says, God does not reveal the meaning and value of human life merely with concepts. Rather, he does it with his word, which is poetry. The word of God is poetry, and in this Poetry, capital P, we find our origin and our destiny. This is our faith. This is our faith. One of the most overlooked, but perhaps one of the most important things Jesus said, in my opinion, when he said to the Pharisees who were challenging him repeatedly, he says, I know where I come from. And I know where I am going. And the Catechism says these two questions where do I come from? Where am I going? These two questions are decisive for the orientation and meaning of our lives and our actions. Lord, we lift up all the listeners right now. All of us, every human being has these questions on the heart where do I come from? Where am I going? Lord, you know where you come from and where you're going, and you invite us to follow you so that we can be with you where you are in the bosom of the Father, drinking in that eternal love song and singing it back and dancing eternally in the love and joy of the Trinity. This is where we're headed. Open our eyes, Lord, to that beautiful destiny and help us to see it everywhere in the sacramentality of the world and in particular in the sacramentality of our bodies created male and female in the image and likeness of God. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
0: Amen. Christopher, it's been an absolute pleasure again, and uh, thank you so much for your time.
1: You're welcome, David. Thank you. So glad to know you and have these conversations. It's It's a real blessing.
0: You've been listening to The Way of Beauty podcast. Conversations on Catholic Faith and Culture. If you enjoyed this episode, then please give us a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others to find it too. Also, if you are interested in delving more deeply into the material that we discuss, you can do a course at the Pontifex University website. That's pontifex.university.